at Regent High School for six years and now has been a teacher at Xavier High School for the past 21 years. I was privileged to be his student back in the day and now I have the honor of working with him here at St. Matthew's. Uh, he is married to Pam and has four children, Matthew, Catherine, Claire, and Jack. Mike and Pam have been members of St. Matthew's for 21 years. So now please help me welcome Michael. Thanks to all of you for brave enough to be here tonight. I truly do appreciate seeing you here. So to start with, I just want to thank the, the good people at CEO and for all that they do. I've been to about half a dozen of these talks, and I always feel like I'm a better person when I leave than before I came. So I hope that you can say the same thing when you leave here tonight. And the CEO speakers that I have listened to have been nothing short of amazing. Uh, I remember being right here at St. Matthew's, and I listened to Archbishop Jekylls tell his story. And I got to say, even for a Nebraska fan, he's, he's okay. He really is. I've listened to a quadriplegic. I've listened to a survivor of the genocide in Rwanda. I've listened to one of my former students, who's now a Catholic priest, all get up in front of people and tell their stories. And now I get to add my name to that list. So in all honesty, I just want to say to my good friends at CEO, what were you thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking when you thought, Mike Goldsmith would be the person to add his name to that list of speakers. The people I've heard have been utterly amazing. And if you don't believe me, of course, go to the CEO website and listen to all of their talks for yourself. Just last month, I was at St. Jude's and the speaker was Dr. Patrice Winkle. And she told her story of surviving car accidents. Not one, not two, but three serious car accidents. She survived thyroid cancer. She had a serious head injury and a wave literally rose up out of the Pacific Ocean, breaking her ribs and rupturing her lung and nearly killing her. My closest thing to a near-death experience has been cheering for the Vikings for 40 years. <laughs> so honestly, I think my story is a very average story. And in many ways, it doesn't compare to the other people who have spoken at these CEOs. But I think that's a lot of us here tonight. We're just average people. We do simple things for our family and for our faith, and there are times when we doubt if the average person in the mirror really matters so much in the grand scheme of things. So while I'm inspired so much by some of the speakers who have given these witness talks, if you see yourselves as just an average Catholic who is grateful for God's presence in your life, but who also goes through the roller coaster of spiritual peaks and valleys and wonders why it has to be that way, perhaps I'm the speaker that you need tonight. And I hope that I am. So as long as I could remember, being Catholic meant belonging. And honestly, it just meant fun. My dad was one of 12 kids, and my mom was one of seven kids. I had 91 first cousins. 91 first cousins. That's Catholic, people. I had 91 first cousins. I am the fifth youngest of the 91. And there was always a family get-together. There was always a picnic. There was always a football game, uh, a baseball game, a Monopoly game. And there was always Sunday Mass. The idea of missing Sunday Mass was just honestly comical. You had to get there earlier, risk somebody else sitting in your pew. And so I, I just you know, grew up in that kind of environment, and that was a habit that I carried forward. The last time that I missed Mass was my sophomore year in college. And you have no idea how guilty I felt about that. I was so happy the next time I got to go to reconciliation. In my world, there were 10 commandments and not 10 suggestions. 
and my life is not always one great choice after another, but I'm proud that Mass was always a priority for me. And you can call it Catholic guilt if you like, but I really believe the world could use more of it. It's been a major, major part of my life, and I don't think that's such a bad thing. I always treasured being Catholic. In our small hometown church of St. Joseph's in Earlville, it's about an hour north and east of here, it's between Manchester and Dyersville, there is a stained glass window and it has my grandfather's name on it. And my father was on the first ever school board of Dyersville Beckman High School. My mother volunteered hundreds of hours at the church and school, and she ran that crank on the mimeograph machine until I'm sure her head was probably someplace else from all the fumes. And for 50, 50 straight years, she made the coleslaw at the St. Joseph's Fish Fry in Earlville. So in a larger sense, the church was also part of my family. My father died when I was very young, when I was two years old, and my mother found her raising six kids between the ages of two and 10, all by herself. But she really wasn't by herself. There was family, there was church, there was community, and we were always surrounded by loved ones who cared for our needs and also for our souls. The Catholic Church became a part of me and it became my North Star leading me forward. I know that I've lost sight of it many times, but I never doubted that it was there and I never doubted that ultimately I would follow it. And being Catholic was just so much fun. I remember the fish fries and the parish programs and the Sunday night card parties my mother would attend at church. We also had a card club full of aunts and uncles and other Catholic friends. In fact, at a rather young age, I served as the local bartender when the roving card party ended up on our family farm. And I was probably about 12 or 13 at the time, and I was cleaning up in the basement, and I noticed one of the beer cans still had some beer left in it. Well, since we were farm folk from Delaware County, it was old Milwaukee, of course. We weren't like the highfalutin people over by Dubuque and their Paps Blue Ribbon, right? <laughs> when nobody was looking, I took a drink. How was I to know that my Uncle George had used that for an ashtray during the card game? <laughs> I can still taste the lessons of my Catholic childhood. I always identified with being Catholic. I remember cheering for Notre Dame as a child, and I had no idea why. I thought it was really amazing that they would travel from their church in France every week just to play a football game in the United States. <laughs> We had the regular Friday and Lent dinner rotation of tuna casserole, fried egg sandwiches, and fish sticks. Getting to go out to the parish fish fry was like the Israelites finding manna in the desert. We waited so long for that meal. My memories of a Catholic childhood are such good memories. There was always belonging, there was always fun. There was always an identity that surrounded you, a purpose for doing what we did. Prayers at home, church on Sunday and holy days, and never more than 50 feet from a rosary. To this day, I still carry a rosary in my pocket with me wherever I go, the same way my dad would carry one in his pocket and even throw one in the tackle box when he went fishing. So when I find myself alone or when I find myself troubled, I reach in my pocket and there's my connection to my father and to my faith. As I grew, again, I think I was just a pretty average kid in high school. I wasn't the top achiever, but I was a pretty good kid. I liked to fly underneath the radar and I chose my friends pretty carefully. In college at the University of Iowa, I wish I could tell you that I was as organized and prepared for everything that came at me. The first semester was my roughest academically, with my mother looking at my first semester report card and promptly stating, you know, Michael, some kids would be happy with those grades. But I also wish I could tell you that I was strong enough just to be my own person and not feel the need to go with the crowd. Alcohol was a pretty steady part of most weekends and was truly the grace of God that saw me through without serious danger. But even though I wasn't perhaps the role model I wish I was, my Catholic faith never wavered. 
My first weekend in Iowa City, I went to the Newman Center for Mass. As soon as they pulled out the tambourine, I was out of my comfort zone. I'm, I was just on the farm two weeks ago. You gotta break me in just slowly. So the next weekend, I went to St. Mary's Church down the street where I would eventually get married. To this day, one of my favorite things is to be in a large church and feel very small in the presence of God. And you'll be happy to know that I have overcome my fear of tambourines and I can relate to most kinds of liturgical music. So in college, you naturally focus on what kind of profession you want for your life, and I chose to pursue a teaching degree. And although this was what I wanted for my career, I knew what I really wanted for my life. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have kids. I wanted picnics and parishes and fish fries. I wanted to give others what I had been given. In a sense, being denied a father at a young age, who was a man of very strong faith, made me want to give that to my future children in order to fill that void. So I knew deep down that this was what I really wanted. It was also in college that I met the love of my life, my wife Pam. For us to even meet in the first place was against all odds. I needed a job my freshman year in college and my dormitory was right next to the hospital. So I walked over to apply for a job in the kitchen washing dishes. On my way there, I ran into my neighbor from back home who worked in the hospital. She literally grew up on the farm next to ours in Earlville, population 750. And there she was just walking through this monstrously large hospital in Iowa City. I told her I was going to apply for a job in the kitchen, and she said, you don't want to work there. You want to work upstairs in one of the labs. But I'm a political science major, I told her. It doesn't matter, she said. They take students of all kinds, and they train them to do the routine work. In the labs, you get one of those spiffy lab coats. So she got me an application, I filled it out. When I was called for an interview, the lady interviewing me was from Hopkitten, Iowa, which happens to be 15 miles from Earlville. What were the odds? It was absolutely unbelievable how all this was lining up. So I got the job and I worked there 20 to 25 hours a week in a laboratory through the rest of my college years. Now the second year I worked there, I joined the laboratory's summer softball team. And there before my eyes stood the second basement of my dreams. <laughs> she was pretty, she was kind, she was honest. She had her own car. <laughs> I never knew I could be so in love. We dated for the next two years and we were engaged for an additional year. Throughout our courtship, I always knew that we were a good couple. But the moment I knew we would spend our lives together was the first Sunday we went to mass together. So everything I'd wanted in life was about to unfold right before my eyes. Pam and I were married in May of 1992 at St. Mary's Church in Iowa City, the same church we attended while we were courting. That fall, I got my first teaching job at what was then Regis High School. Now this is a testament to how lucky I am to be married to this woman. I came home and informed her that I had just been offered a two-tenths part-time teaching contract at a Catholic high school. I would teach one class a day and substitute teach for the rest of the time. A two-tenths teaching contract at a Catholic school. Do you know how much money that isn't? <laughs> but she knew that after a year and a half of substitute teaching and coaching that I was desperate to have a job to call my own. She also knew that Catholic schools held a special place in my heart. And given the choice, I would want to work there if our family could afford it. Pam still has that job as a medical technologist at University Hospitals in Iowa City. And you need to be really good at algebra to understand how much more money she makes than I do. 
She has been the one who has sacrificed so that I can do what I do. And since sometimes joy can't wait, we were also expecting our first child. Matthew was born in April of 1993, and the next year we moved from our duplex in North Liberty to our first home in Cedar Rapids. My teaching contract was now a full-time contract, and we were now homeowners with a young child. So we set off to find a Catholic church in Cedar Rapids. One of our first stops was right here at St. Matthew's. And here we brought our young child. And here we prayed with this impressive Catholic community. And here our two-year-old son at his first mass at St. Matthew's screamed so loud and so long, we swore to God we'd never set foot in this building again. <laughs> there have been multiple demon exorcisms that have been quieter and less violent than what we experienced on that day. Monsignor Hogan's voice had no chance. So off we went to St. Pius, and there we stayed for two years until it came time for us to consider a daycare and a school for him. And since St. Pius did not have a daycare, we looked around again, and my friends with whom I taught at Regis spoke glowingly of St. Matthew's school and of the parish community. So we gave it a chance, and it has enriched our lives more than we can say. So many of our dearest friends, some of whom are here tonight, are those we've met at St. Matthew's. From Monsignor Hogan to Father Mark to Father David to Father Steve. From Sister Mary's cackling howl at Halloween to Miss Jan's loving guidance on the playground and Mr. Wolf's leadership at the school. We were living out the dreams we always had for ourselves and our children. And Pam and I had always discussed whether or not we should have two or three children. And since we can never quite agree on things, we had four. Catherine was born in 1996, Claire in 1999, and Jack in 2002. I can honestly say that I had all my life's dreams answered at that point in time. I had the gift of a beautiful wife, a home to call my own, a bustling, lively family, and a tremendous faith community. I loved my job. I volunteered as a youth baseball and basketball coach. We had picnics and fish fries. I said my prayers, and the list of thanks just seemed to keep getting longer and longer. And as sometimes happens in life, when you reach the top of the mountain, for no real reason at all, you find that the joy of the climb seemed to exceed the end result. Spiritually speaking, I think I got a little bit lazy and was probably just content to be where I was at instead of still growing in my faith. I think that I stopped being as grateful. With young children in the house, perhaps just being at Mass on Sunday and saying prayers before bedtime was enough. Surely taking four kids to Mass every week and having them in a Catholic school had given me enough Jesus points to make things okay. Everything else was just so busy. And I sometimes think, what if we stood outside the pearly gates and waited for St. Peter's answer as to whether or not we'd get in? And the response was, I don't know, Mike. I'm just so busy. Let me see if I can squeeze you in at a later time. I accepted how blessed I was in life, but my goals drifted and became a lot more earthly and a lot less heavenly. Regular prayer was not as regular, and scripture came only in 10-minute chunks of time on Sunday morning. One incident in particular caught me off guard. I was home in the summer with the kids, and there was a knock on the door. As I opened it to see who was on the deck, I was greeted by two very well-dressed people with pamphlets in their hands. They were from the local Baptist church, and they wanted to know if I was going to heaven. They were... After a short conversation, it was pretty clear to me that they believed that I was in serious jeopardy and perhaps off to hell. I knew that I did not accept what they were teaching me about salvation, and I knew that I would never abandon my Catholic faith. But when it came time to respond to them, here was my classic line. I'm Catholic, and I'm happy, and I slammed the door in their face. That really bothered me. 
The visitors didn't bother me. My inability to respond bothered me. My answer was weak and it was lazy. I could not even explain my faith to someone who had asked. It left me with a desperate feeling that did not go away. So I think I was asking myself a basic question that all of us probably ask about our faith. Is it ours or isn't it? It was chosen for me by my parents, but had I chosen it for myself? Why did I believe the things I did? Why do any of us believe the things that we do? For the longest time, those two visitors from the local church never really left my doorstep. So like I did with most issues that bother me, I brought it up to Pam on a long car trip where she could not escape. And after a couple of these long car trips, she told me to go look for answers with the people at work, which by this time was Xavier High School. After speaking with many people whom I respected, I finally took my issue to Dr. Phil Dre, who's a theology teacher at the school. It's not an understatement to say this was a Holy Spirit-inspired meeting. As I told him about my personal frustrations in owning my faith and teaching it to others, he told me about some of his students' frustrations in not being able to dive deeply into core issues of the faith. We both thought that if we could improve upon the way our faith was passed along to students, we could give them not just the answers to the test, but we could teach them the problem-solving skills to figure out answers on their own. We liked to tell each other that we were trying to get students to fish for a lifetime and not just eat for a meal. How convenient it was that at this exact time in my life that I needed to understand more about my relationship with God that this class came together. In my mind, it was about as coincidental as running into an old neighbor from back home in a huge hospital to help me get a college job I wasn't qualified for that helped me meet the woman of my dreams. It was all just a coincidence. The class did not come together right away. After 18 months and more interviews, endless conversations with Phil, field trips, and much research, we created an apologetics class at school titled Why Am I Catholic? As many of you know, apologetics is the practice of explaining and defending the Catholic faith. The class wasn't perfect, but it was perfect timing for my soul. Instead of just accepting things on faith, we took genuine looks into the rationale, the why, and how of church teachings. And it wasn't just scripture, though that was a huge part of it. We also looked at the great tradition of the church and read quotes and excerpts from the church fathers. This really stirred up the social studies teacher in me. Prior to this class, I had no idea there existed so many primary documents from the first church fathers. When Jesus told the apostles to spread the good news, this is who they spread it to. Now I was reading about St. Polycarp and St. Clement, both of whom said in the early second century that the apostles preached the gospel to them. I was reading an amazing first century document called the Didache, which contains the first written down form of the Eucharistic prayer. It was like I was attending mass with the first Christians that walked with Jesus. I was reading the epistles of St. Ignatius written in the very early second century. After being told by the Roman Emperor Trajan to stop spreading this nonsense known as Christianity, he refused. He was led to his death, a journey of well over 1,500 miles. So on the way, on this 1,500 mile journey, he stopped. He wrote seven epistles to the uh, Christian communities along the way, encouraging them. If you ever want to be truly inspired, read St. Ignatius's letter to the Romans, where he looks forward to being fed to the lions as a means to unite with God. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, about human nature that seeks death. Yet we saw the earliest Christians accept death over and over again instead of abandoning their Christian faith. And now the faith was just being reawakened in me. And the reason was because I had looked for it myself. I can't emphasize how my faith flourished when I became a seeker of faith. And I know this is such an obvious thing when I look back on it, but it wasn't obvious to me at the time. 
And you remember the visitors on my doorstep from years earlier who informed me that I was off to hell, perhaps. Well, it just so happens that years later, two more visitors showed up on my doorstep again, pretty much telling me the exact same thing. This time I didn't slam the door, this time I opened the door wide, and we had us to talk about the ever after. And after 20 minutes, we agreed to disagree and I wished them well. I didn't feel like I had won an argument. I felt like I had claimed a faith. I loved teaching the course and I still do. Can you imagine the excitement in a room full of 17-year-olds when I tell them we are going to look through 1,900-year-old documents for clues about interpreting Catholic dogma? <laughs> it's almost as great as a snow day, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Looking for primary documents and spending time with scripture to understand Catholic teaching isn't for everyone, but for me it was a turning point. I came up with a new word to describe my Catholic faith, and the word was and still is this, logical. The Catholic faith is logical. I can tell you why the church teaches what it teaches because I can open up the sources and see them for myself. Matters of faith were now matters of logic as well. I felt as if I were living out one of my favorite scripture verses from Jeremiah 29:13. When you look for me, you will find me. Yes, when you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me. I felt like I had found God in a new and permanent way, and I still feel that way. And so, just as my own personal faith was being strengthened, the church began to face many challenges. The priest sex abuse scandals took a huge toll on the church, and it still does today. I grieve for those impacted by this betrayal of their trust and for the honorable men of God who dedicate their lives to serving the church and are considered guilty by association. The elevation of science as a replacement for religion began to take hold in many circles. Never mind that the Big Bang Theory was created by a Catholic priest or that the arguments for the coexistence of faith and reason are amazingly logical. The idea of there being no such thing as truth even gained a lot of traction. Truth is just what I perceive it to be if we're reading the Gospel of Relativism. Of course, when you believe that truth is what you perceive to be, you've just made a statement of absolute truth, saying there's no such thing as absolute truth. And for the teenage crowd that I worked with every day, the church's position on marriage and homosexuality was a dominant one. There was such a generational gap on this topic, and when I look back and examine my own personal feelings and actions, I have to admit that I did not take enough time and care to listen to the voices of my students or to educate myself on why the church teaches what it does. I think I was like a lot of people in my age group in that homosexuality was never really discussed growing up. And if a family member or close friend was gay, it was pretty much just ignored. They were sort of like modern day lepers. But they were never meant to be lepers. They are my students, friends, and my in-laws. In the case of my brother-in-law, Stephen, he was the uncle my kids never got to meet. So there was a younger generation and they saw a group of people who were being hidden away and ignored, and they sought to help them. But once I took the time to research and to consider the church's teachings on the matter, I had something a lot of people did not have. I had the knowledge of why and how the church establishes its teachings on topics like marriage. This combination of scripture and tradition doesn't follow popular opinion and it can't just change with the times. To do this would be to take almost every church teaching and throw it out the window because now you're making up your own rules on how to teach the faith. 
After educating myself, I understood this. Bishop Fulton Sheen once said that there aren't a hundred people who, hurt, who hate the church, but there are millions who hate what they wrongly perceive the church to be. So yes, it was still logical, but that didn't stop millions from leaving the church. I could see my students not buying in like they used to. I could hear the lamenting at church committees on which I served. Attendance is down, people aren't volunteering, we have no money. I could see some of my own family members becoming lax in their faith. And one night I did what any logical Catholic during this time might do. I cried myself to sleep, praying for the soul of a loved one who no longer attended Mass. I think we all have those we love who wish that they would make different choices. And we all have those moments when we stare in the mirror and we wish that we had made different choices. I don't have a magic answer for these problems, but I do believe in the power of prayer and someone made in the image of God is always worth praying for. This is really hard for me to get over, and honestly, I'll never totally get over this, seeing churches more empty than full, seeing families growing up without faith, seeing youth basketball and baseball tournaments on Sunday mornings that are valued more than Sunday Mass. There's a simple reason I'll never get over it. <laughs> it's wrong. It shouldn't be like this. I'm not immune to, to sacrificing family weekends for the sake of my children's athletic pursuits. Part of my prayer life was always my son's athletic pursuits and his future in the Xavier Varsity program. But in all the weekend tournaments we attended, my proudest accomplishment was that he and I never missed mass together. So I knew in my heart that this was now how life was and it wasn't going back. I kept on teaching the best I could and I became more involved at St. Matthew's. Still, there was a real and true spiritual depression that had set in for me. I had claimed my own faith, but could not convey it to others like I wished. At one point, I had to honestly ask myself the question of whether or not my life's work had mattered. I always saw my job as not just teaching kids, but shepherding souls. I felt like I was failing. If the cultural shift of an entire generation told youth that they were their own gods, how could I fight that? And by defending church teachings, not only was I becoming more of a minority, but I was seen as hateful and judgmental by some. It made it really hard to teach. And I saw some of my fellow theology teachers go through some very unfair things being attacked on social media just for doing their job. More and more as I age, I really, truly do empathize greatly with those who struggle with church teachings. I listen to them and I try to learn from them. However, there often seems to be precious little empathy for the views of the church which in my mind are not judgmental, but are logical. And they always attempt to point us toward higher ideals of truth and love, which are very, very real things. So it may not seem that way to everyone, but I would ask those who would criticize how much time they've truly spent researching and attempting to understand the teachings of the church. It didn't happen all at once. It was more of an incoming ocean wave that can't be stopped or reasoned with. My joy in being Catholic was gone. I grew up praying for a certain kind of life. I was given everything that I asked for, and I was now entering a spiritual depression that would last for several years. I never lost faith. I never stopped going to Mass. I knew who I was. But the companions on the journey became fewer, and our children's generation seemed to be drifting away. I looked at people my own age, and I saw a variety of reactions. Some were still the same wonderful, positive people I had always known. Some seemed angry and defiant, and they were very quick to point out how wrong other people were. Some acted as if nothing was changing in the church. 
Some were obsessed with the idea of, as long as my child's happy, everything's okay. Some seemed to mirror my depression with that of their own, and some just seemed to walk away. And I knew I couldn't walk away. I never could. But I also knew that my depression was turning into self-pity and a disappointing lack of faith for somebody who had been granted the wishes of so many of his prayers. So just as there were several things in several years that led me down that path, there have been several things and several people who have helped me find my way back. My wife Pam has been a constant, support, constant source of support and love. You know how in some relationships you look at them and you say, you know, one person's kind of a yapper and one person's kind of a listener. Guess which one she is? <laughs> Praying with Pam always puts my restless heart at ease. When all of our adult children are at home, there's always the pause before mealtime because everybody knows you don't dare touch a potato until we hold hands and bless the food. Seeing people of immense faith on church com committees here at St. Matthew's, among my co-workers at school, and among my peer group of friends is such an anchor to hold on to. I also took strength from Pope Francis. Now, if you're anywhere near my age, it's a good chance that your hero is probably Pope John Paul II, the man who stared into communist Eastern Europe and said, be not afraid. Getting to pray before his body at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was such a privilege for me. But there was something different about Pope Francis. He had the spark, the spark that could rekindle a flame. I read his book, The Joy of the Gospel, where he talked about the absolute joy of evangelizing, the joy of prayer, the joy of the Sunday homily, the joy contained in scripture, when the angel greeted Mary, when the disciples saw the risen Christ, and when Jesus says to us in John's Gospel, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And there's another line from that book that summarized my life perfectly at that point. There are Christians whose lives seem like Lent without Easter. There are Christians whose lives seem like Lent without Easter. That was me. And although the fish fry at St. Pat's can almost make it seem like Lent should be all year long, there has to be an Easter, and there has to be, and I needed that reminder. I also had the privilege at Xavier of working with students who had discerned religious vocations, and as if by the cry of the Holy Spirit, young people began to answer that call. The first 10 years Xavier was open, we had two students discern religious vocations. In the next 10 years, we had 10 more students and two faculty members. Three of our alumni have been ordained priests and two women have professed final vows to their religious communities. They are not simply happy, they are joyful, and their joy is infectious. One of these now is Father Jacob Rouse. He was just an average kid. He was a quiet kid. He honestly struggled to find his way when he started high school. But he had an amazing, supporting, loving family, and he found the right friends and the right situation, and then the Holy Spirit found him. Last spring, I was at his first Mass at St. Patrick's, his home parish, and I'm sitting in the second to the last pew, and there's 30 priests back there, and they're all getting ready to walk up to the front before this, this impressive mass. And all of a sudden, I hear a voice behind me. Psst, Mr. Goldsmith, psst, Mr. Goldsmith. And I turned around, and there's Father Rouse, and he said, Mr. Goldsmith, I'm a priest. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, I know. I wish you could have seen his face. I'll never forget it. Please, please pray for these brave men and women in our church. Our words of encouragement and our prayers will bring about the next generation of church leaders. 
And if it seemed earlier as if I had given up on young people in the church, I absolutely certainly have not. There are millions of souls who are seeking and who want to know God. They desire a community in which to pray and serve. I routinely look at some of my students in class and think to myself, I wish I was as holy as you. I think more than anything else, their desire to serve others is what I need most in my own life. I have made a living talking as Christ talked. What I need is to make more of a living walking as Christ walked. To get out of our shiny buildings and go serve the needy is what Christ calls us to do. And it is something that young people are very much in tune with today. To take what's in our heads and live it in our hearts is to make us a church that people can't help but admire. I remember being right here at St. Matthew's listening to Archbishop Jekylls give his CEO talk. And at one point he said that Catholics should live their lives so that other people observe them and say, I want what they've got. Perhaps this commitment to putting our Catholic faith in action is a bridge that can bring our generations back together again. And during this time, I drew more confidence and more courage from the Eucharist. For anyone, a true understanding and belief in the Eucharist is such a challenge. It's hard to get over the fact that it looks and tastes like a thin little wafer of bread. But our pursuit of the Eucharist in the Why My Catholic class went so deep that it changed me. Going to Mass was sometimes more of a checklist item because, you know, there are Ten Commandments, not Ten Suggestions. But to really try to wrestle with the meaning of the Eucharist, it just changed everything for me. It really is heaven crashing into earth, and it makes Mass a destination instead of a requirement. I'm always struck by the fact that for those who convert to the Catholic faith, the primary reason for many of them is because they can't stand to be without the Eucharist. When we studied the Eucharist in class, we combed over the sixth chapter of John's Gospel line by line to fully appreciate the words of Jesus and the reaction of the crowd. We looked at the Last Supper of Jesus and his apostles, the first Catholic Mass, and connected it to the original Passover meal of the book of Exodus. Now the phrase, Lamb of God, did no longer brought to mind visions of cuddly sheep, but that of a slaughtered lamb in the Jewish tradition of sacrifice, and the blood of Jesus, the new Lamb of God, spilled so that I might be spared. We were just getting warmed up. The quotes and thoughts of the church fathers were enormous. These early leaders of the first Christian communities did not always agree on everything, but when it came to the Eucharist, they sang with a nearly unified voice. They believed it to be the body and blood of Christ. They are the closest thing we have to the breath of the apostles, and we know what they believed. Then we dove into some Greek. We looked at Greek philosophy to discern the difference between transformation and transubstantiation, or really the difference between form and substance. The best analogy I have ever heard comes from one of the most brilliant men I know, Father Dustin Vu. Five minutes before your first child is born, and five minutes after your first child is born, you're the same person. They could run every scientific test in the world on you, and you would be the same. But who you are, your core, your substance, your being, is forever changed. You're a parent now, and everything you do about you is changed. Those of us who are parents know this to be true. And so it is with the Eucharist. Don't look for a physical change in taste, because it is the substance which has been altered. The Catechism in paragraph 1324 beautifully describes the Eucharist as the source and summit of Christian life. Think about that, the source and summit of Christian life. It is where we begin and where we aspire to end. Every way that I looked at the Eucharist made more and more sense to me. For those who do not attend Mass, I don't believe it to be an issue of music or an issue of preaching. I believe it to be a lack of faith in the Eucharist. 
I can't fathom being without it. Slowly, my joy was returning. I saw the joy and the privilege of working at a Catholic school, in the treasures of my wife and family, and in everyday life. I did my best to let those church volunteers who serve with me know that it was a privilege to do God's work here at St. Matthew's. I believe I used the phrase leaner and meaner to describe our evolving church. I'm not all joy all the time, but I consider myself to be a more confident, grateful Catholic and a true child of God. I consider the future of our church to be bright, and when I find my faith and church being criticized, I remind myself there's never been a better time to be a Christian because just like Jesus, we are now countercultural. We can take this. Finally, I had a revelation that changed my outlook, and it was this. For me to be depressed, for me to moan about the state of our membership and the choices of others, it's an insult to Christ. He deserves my joy. He died for my joy. How dare I not live a life that reflects that? How dare I not be a person of joy? How dare I look at that cross and lose faith? My story is not one of heroic deeds or overcoming great obstacles. It's a simple story of an average man. But there's nothing average about the blessings I have received, nothing average about the people I've encountered, and nothing average about a soul committed to Christ. We have all been given the gift of faith. We all have a choice of whether or not to accept it. But be careful. When we do accept it, we accept the joy that goes with it. So let's do that. Let's be joyful in a kind of way that others know cannot be taken away. Let's have others look at us and say, I want what they got. Let's not be afraid to tell others the good news that has been given to us. In word and in deed, our lives can be summed up very simply. Joy to the world. Joy to the world. Let's never forget it. Praise be to God.